Let's now, uh, uh, so this text to Exodus 20, now I feel like I need to give some introductions so we're, we can kind of catch up and know where we're at. And we're talking about worship, and we're plumbing, we're kind of exploring the depths of Old Testament worship so that we can, I think, move towards what Christ describes in John 4, that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth, for God is seeking such worshipers. So it occurred to me that we don't necessarily know what worship is or have a good, solid concept of it. And so it's, it also seemed to me that worship is a big crisis in these days, a crisis of entertainment, a crisis of consumerism. And it, it just seems, it, 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 I, my heart, there's a heart cry in me that just, it won't stop. And I, and, I, and I think this is more important, more vital, more, there's more of a crisis possibility here than, 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 we, than we entertain. Uh, okay, uh, this is, we're going to look at right here, this is the beginning of worship in the Bible of the church. Uh, we looked at worship before, there's some worship that happens before this, and we're going to take a look at some of that. But this is where the, 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 the nitty gritty is getting worked out. The details of, is, are getting worked out. Up to this point, right after the flood of Genesis 8, Mo, uh, uh, Noah erects an altar uh, I don't even, we don't know what, there's no altar before that. No altar being mentioned. But all of a sudden he erects an altar. And I, you know, we, we don't really know why. Why an altar? What does an altar say? What does it communicate? And what does it tell us Noah understood or felt or wanted? An altar is put up. Then Abraham starts putting up altars. He puts one when he, when he leaves, when God calls him to leave his land. And then he puts up an altar elsewhere in Shechem. And as these events and big events happen in his life, he'll erect an altar, a pile of stones, like a table almost, on which to sacrifice an animal. An altar. Somehow, by instinct or some awareness, uh, Abraham knows he's got to do that. So does Noah. Then Isaac. What do you think Isaac winds up doing? 
He sets up an altar. What do you think Jacob winds up doing? He does it a number of times. He sets up altars. And there are important points in his life where he meets God for the first time. When God speaks to him, puts up an altar. And, and there's, so this, this theme kind of comes along. And now, 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 in Exodus 20, now we've come to the establishment of the people of God. Now the people of God are being assembled and God is regulating. He is regulating. He is controlling. He is guiding. He's, he is teaching them how to worship. What does it look like to worship? Well, what, what, what form will worship take and how will it be done? Now, we may likely think this is a fairly idle thing to talk about. Now, I, this is very, very contemporary. We, we, as worship, I've seen worship in all sorts of various forms and freedoms. Weird, I've seen people cackle, bark like dogs. I've seen uh, people dance, sing, all these things. But all right, it's a lot of stuff. But I think we fail to, we might fail here a little bit. There's a, there's a story coming. There's a story coming of Nadab and Abihu, two young men who were called, like me, to a professional ministry where they would broker God's presence and they would lead worship. It's in Leviticus 10, Genesis 6, Leviticus 10. Leviticus 10, if you want to read it in your Bibles. But they decide, and perhaps under some uh, impulse of creativity and, and approaching God, but they decide in the worship process, which they're being indoctrinated into, for the very first time, God is being worshiped by his people. They decide to tinker. They decide to do something a little creative, new. Their dad's standing there. Uh, uh, his name was Aaron. Moses is their uncle. Nadab and Abihu, uh, Ithamar and Eleazar, there's four times. They're, they're, they're the very first time enacting worship. Every one of them had a sacrifice where blood covered their thumb, blood covered their right ear, blood covered their big toe. They were covered with blood for their purity. But Nadab and Abihu got a little creative and they died. Worship, there's something about it. it we, we treat it pretty casually, right? We treat it pretty, uh, as some sort of, it's simply an avenue for self-expression, right? How many of us have thought that's what worship really is? It's just an avenue, another avenue, my self-expression. Well, maybe my self-actualization. Maybe I'm becoming a fuller person. Maybe worship is some way to improve the experience of what it is to be human. That is certainly a very popular and common idea. And if you think about it, consumer attitudes about worship, where we create an experience you like, is just such a thing, right? It's just exciting and, 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 and energizing. And, and in fact, we know if worship's better based on how good it makes us feel. But then God consumes people for worshiping him poorly. And I'm sitting there thinking, or worshiping them creatively, their own spirit or idea or imagination. And all of a sudden, I'm arrested by this. Somehow, something doesn't make sense with what I have experienced in evangelicalism. And I've enjoyed, I'm not saying. Uh, but somehow, there's something jarring that in the moment of worship, somebody got creative, and it says that fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them right, right in front of their dad. Right in front of their brothers. 
This is the inauguration of the worship of Israel. And two boys are dead on the ground, charring charred corpses before the altar. All of a sudden, worship is all it seems more about blood and death and sacrifice and altars than about my self-expression and experience and self-realization. Really, worship is something more grim, more, more has to do more with blood and mediation, with a, with a thundering mountain that is billowing smoke and fire, and people are going to Moses. You go talk to him. You go talk to him. Because if we talk to him, we're going to die. That's a very different version of worship from the one we're familiar with, isn't it? And perhaps the one we have sleepily and casually and oftentimes almost irreverently uh, engaged in, right? So we come to this text here, and, and, and all of this, and, and, and what I want to do is, uh, I have an outline, we'll move towards it now. This whole idea of the altar, of the blood, what's, what, what's going on here? We find that worship, I think, as the passionate pursuit of Christ, winds up having to do with life and death, eternity, and hell, and damnation in heaven. And all of a sudden, worship is a crucible like whereby we are either revealing and knowing and seeing and grasping the love of God in Christ, or we're waking up to judgment in our own indifference. So what, what jar me what right away out the door is this image of the altar, the slaughtering table. That's really what an altar is. It's a place to kill things. It's a place where blood runs free. The altar. And there's an idea that it's, where this altar becomes central to Old Testament worship, that it is saying something very different about the knowledge of God than we have thought. It is saying that there's a, it is admitting, it is beginning with the idea that there's a problem here between us and God. There is a fissure, a crack, a separation, a gulf, an abyss, if you will, that's separating us from God. And that abyss is because of Him and His holiness and His righteousness and His purity and His grandeur. He dwells in unapproachable light. There's something the ancients understood that seems missing today, doesn't it? Somehow absent. Because they knew if any motion could go upward, even up an altar, correct? An altar's an elevated piece of ground, an elevated earth. If there's any approach, it had to be done through blood. There had to be a price to pay. There had to be a mediation between the parties. God being the offended party and us being the offenders. And so Nadab and Abihu in their casual creative worship were somehow thinking that you get around or get by or somehow approach God in some manner other than blood. Why? And God's judgment was immediate. I'm going to explore why. I'm going to, I think there's an answer to that riddle. Maybe you find it a little bit jarring to think that God would, God would judge people in such a fashion. It's worse than you think. It's even worse than you suspect. Uh, in that scene, uh, actually, uh, Moses turns to his brother Aaron and says, God says, you are forbidden to mourn. Keep doing the work. We're not finished with worship. He's not even allowed to mourn in the moment of his son's death. 
So there's a grave, there's life and death, there's this grave, a problem only blood will solve. And here, here I drew an altar. Isn't it, isn't it really, is it kind of captured imagination? The block. And the idea is that, that, that so we, we come to the table of mediation. We come to the place that God has ordained. And, what, and there's a reason why we're going to look at it. But what about this altar? Why should, we, why should we think about it? We need mediation. I was trying to figure out how to talk about this. Um, I like cars. Anybody? I love, I love cars. I love working, working on cars. And do you know, you ever look at the uh, RPMs on your cars? And the RPMs usually start, it's sort of about 1,000 to 5, 7, and 8, 9,000. And you ever notice when you drive your car, it's constantly swiping back and forth like this. And those, the, inside your engine, there are a number of revolutions having a piston, 3 to 5,000 revolutions per minute. And they're, they're pumping the four-stroke engine. But that power can't get to the wheels. It can't, the, the wheels can't go that The wheels can't go that fast. With, because then you wouldn't be able to stop and go. You wouldn't be able to control your speed, right? Something has to translate all that power and explosion into the forward momentum of a car. A transmission does that. Well, in a sense, this altar, and this sounds like a rough, this is a really rough illustration. I'm trying to, it translates all that God is to us. All of that raw power of holiness has to somehow get available here, like here with my flesh and my fingers, and here with Peter and the piano. All this has to, has to get here somehow. How does it get here? How does it become available? Something has to transmit it. That's what, that's what, that, that's what the altar does. There's another uh, illustration I had. I don't know if it's going to be any more helpful uh, than that one. Where are my glasses? Abhaka, thank you. And, and uh, uh, yeah, uh, or like a capacitor, or a fuse, or, or, it's, or you know, even down to like the other day, I was thinking, I was trying to imagine all these places where we use things to mediate, and it was the funniest place where I thought about it. it was, I put on a potholder to go into the oven to get a pan. Christ is a potholder. That's sort of my point. Like they're like the altar's a potholder. It, it makes you able to go places you shouldn't be able to go. It makes, it makes, to touch things you shouldn't be able to touch. To be available for a power which would consume you. And it's holiness and purity. And that's what an altar is. It's a mediatory place. It's a place where peace is worked out between you and God. Between God and you. More precisely. Because it has to do with him. Alright, but the reason people don't like this is because it sounds so transactional. Have you heard this? It's sounds so transactional. It sounds as if to say we're reducing all of God's majesty and all of our hope and eternal life down to some transaction. A transaction that happens to be blood. But doesn't that sound a little crass? Doesn't that sound a little ugly, dirty? Yeah, it does. You know why? Because you and I are crass. And we're ugly and dirty. <laughs> That's God's vision of us. And that is why he comes to rescue us in our room. Yes, it is grass. I was looking, I read faith in the scriptures. Do you know every morning and every evening, blood against the altar, blood against the stones. Every day, every day in the temple, there's not one, not one command to ever clean off the altar. There are no commands. There are commands to clean the, the priest's robes if they get blood on them. There's commands, to, and they're very detailed, but there's no command 
to clean the altar. And I think that somewhere in this transactional idea of worship, where God is holy, utterly holy, and we're called to meet him on his terms at his altar, and he prescribes, and he controls, that I think offends modernity. It offends the sensitivities. It offends the hermetically sealed tech world. There's no blood in tech, right? Just numbers and code. It's so sanitary, clean, antiseptic, unreal. It's only with blood does this business get done. So we need a mediator. Did you notice that the people say, go for us? And Moses draws nearer to the, to, the, uh, to the smoke and the fire. In some way, Moses and the altar and the picture of an altar are both ways God saying you need a mediator. So whenever God starts talking about you need a mediator and he starts to model what a mediator is through this, through this altar image, and as he gets described, what's really happening? What's beginning to happen? What's beginning to be forecast and anticipated? It's Jesus. Because you know what you know what the cross is? The cross is an altar. The cross itself is an altar. And all these previous altars, thousands of altars, all across the Old Testament, as they were erected, as they were used, as the blood was spilt, they were meant to be promises. Because you see, a lamb can't save a cow. And a sheep, sheep's blood is just sheep's blood at the end of the day. But they were anticipations, little promises, little deposits saying, look, I will come. I will come. I will send my son. I will bleed. He will bleed. I will provide the sacrifice. I will come to the altar. And I will be forgiveness of sins. I will solve the problem. And I will mediate between pure holiness and who you are. That's what happens at the cross. You see... And, and, and this idea of substitutionary atonement, this is the ground of all possible worship. This is it. This is why we gather together. Look, there's still altars, guys. See? Right? And then what happens? Blood pours out. No, that's what happens. And it's messy. What, did I mess up this? Did I mess this up? Did I mess? Am I, is this not sanitary anymore? What do you think this is? Nobody cleaned up after Jesus' death because nobody cared. The slaughterhouses, that's what you do. An abattoir stinks. But that's just the place where God did the dirty business of dying for sinners in their ruin. And now worship is possible. Now worship grabs that love of God at that altar and keeps celebrating and making it available to everybody by faith. You see, that altar is a living place of love and life where God has solved the mediatory problem, the gulf, the abyss, the the separation uh, that happened was now healed and solved in this crass, murderous place where Christ dies, the abattoir of the cross. Worship then celebrates, enacts, and is founded on a transaction. I'm going to come here today. And, and so worship is built on how we believe these things, how we approach them, how we grab Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel, as he's grabbed, he's offered to us at the cross. Now, what I want to do now, all right, so I, 
Some of you may be, I was wondering as I was thinking about preparing this message, that, you know, I'm thinking, I, I do anticipate, I mean, some people think I don't care what anybody thinks. It's actually not true. I actually, I actually care more than you think, and I, I actually want you to be impressed that I don't care what you think. You know, it's still messed up inside my head. It's just a mess in there. But I don't know any other way around this. Worship is based and begins on the blood on the altar. And that's our hope. So this text now is going to teach us about worship. I want you to read it. We're going to read it together. I'm serious. We're going to go right into it. Because there's something that just kind of opens up kind of beautifully in front of us. So first thing they say is, you need to go speak to God or we're going to die. You go speak to God or we're going to die. And then God speaks. Do not fear, Moses said to the people, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be on before you, that you may not sin. Right out the gate. This message of blood and what worship is really like in the guts is kind of scary. Right? And it's the kind of scary that saves you. Because this fear, the fear of God, drives out all other fear. Do you guess the, the paradox there? What does he say? It's kind of funny. Don't be afraid. Because you need to fear. <laughs> Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Fear the right thing. <laughs> and that drives out all other fears. That you may not what? Sin. Right at the outset, the reason this transactional bloody business of the cross must be put on display by the preacher of the gospel is so you understand that you ought to fear him. And no longer be afraid of anything else. <laughs> be released. That you may fear him, so what? So, so that you may not sin. Because this intimacy, as you move towards this God, as you begin to know him and understand him, and you understand the price of his son's blood, you understand the earnestness of his holiness and his absolute purity, how shall we worship? Because in a, in a sense, fear God. Fear God. Fear him now as you know him. Fear him as you see him now. Because in the midst of that fear is the freedom from all fear. And the release from the bondage of sin. <laughs> it's this wonderful place. Worship ignites all possible obedience. Worship ignites holiness. As we come before an almighty God. And we see the transaction. And we grab the transaction. And make it ours. Make it ours by faith. That's our first point. What next? Well we can just keep going through the text together. The people stood far off, and Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the I am said to Moses, Thus shall you say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked to you from heaven. Go back to worship. How many, how many, have met, how many, how many parts of this text, anything in worship so far, have been man's words? Little bits here and there. But what's the most of it? God's word. What is worship? It is attending to a God who has come to speak. You see, the reason I think Noah knew about an altar, we don't really know, and the reason he might know about an altar, why Abraham knew about an altar, is God had been speaking. He had been revealing himself. He had described what the price was. And there was an instinct, so the instinct and his revelation, it was there. It was there. Um, to clothe Adam in the garden, animals were killed. It's always been, it's, it's been a long-standing theological curiosity that the death of the animals sounds like sacrifice. They weren't even eating animals yet. 
sacrifice must happen. It is all about blood. It is all life and death. And eternity hangs in the balance. So what is worship? Attending to the God who speaks. Attending, listening, and knowing. And worship is filled. And worship is authenticated by the power and the presence of the word of God. And let me, let me attend to this right now. This morning, this morning I was upstairs and I was in prayer. I can hear everybody talking down here. So you should be careful what you say because I can hear you up there. I'm just teasing. I'm listening and I'm praying. I can't pray. I'm just like, I feel like I'm battling. I can't seem to get through. I want intimacy with that. I can't get it. I seem to get it. And I, my mind is swimming with thoughts. Swimming and racing with thoughts about this Tuesday and what's going to happen Wednesday night. Where, you know, what's, this, what's going to happen with the finances and how we're going to... And all these different things are happening in my head. And I'm like, I can't focus on God. Is this, am I the only one who experiences this? This is a pretty universal experience, right? And I remember what an old saint told me. I remember I've known and seen for so many years. You think I was... Smart enough to figure this out now. Wait a second. I need to read my Bible. It was like an instinct. I need to hear God's voice. I, I want to encourage you to try to test this. I turned right away to Psalm 38 to confess my sin. And the words. I don't know how to describe this. I, this, I don't know if this happens to you. But the words. When I hear my Father's voice, I can feel myself bending and turning and looking. It clears out the clutter, the opinions, the mind. My mind is so weak and, and bendable and fragile and distracted. Oh, but when my father speaks, it's just clear. And you'll notice all of our worship is built on the God who spoke to us from heaven. Praise him. This is the warrant for your worship. Let's keep going. I mean, this is, he's telling you this is who he is. This is why they know you shall say, you have seen for yourselves and talked to me from heaven. You shall not. Okay, now the worship has prohibitions in it. Worship has boundaries. Worship has things that are forbidden. You shall not make for yourself idols of silver or of gold. It's kind of funny because it's exactly what they're going to do next. Exactly what they're going to do in about 10 minutes after this. <laughs> That's what they're going to do. They're going to... Anyway, talk about that later. But... Worship has this Prohibition in it. Worship Christ. Now, why can't win a silver or gold? People always say, idols are, are like helpers. That's why, that's why people defend them. Well, they just help me focus, right? They help me focus. They help me see. But idols are a cheat. You know why? Do you know why idols of stone and wood and silver and gold are a cheat? Because they could never picture Christ who is coming. They would all be inadequate to capture the breath of God's love by giving his own son. Every single idol, every single image that the people prostrated themselves before was a cheat and a lie because it obscured the coming of the Son of Heaven to give his own blood. You, you catch that? Idols are an affront because they hide Jesus. They don't reveal him. They hide God's plan. And God's plan was never to give you merely a substitute for himself. It was to give you himself. You get that? He was never going to give you a cheat. He was never going to give you false gods. He's going to give you himself. That's what happens next. I'm going to, I will come to you. And this idea, that's what idols are. That's why I encourage you. Do not use idols. Don't use little images and icons to help you worship because they're just a cheat. God is greater. And you are being involved, invited not to a relationship with an idol, but a relationship with a person. <laughs> and 
It's, it's all about the blood. Idols don't bleed, do they? Why do I keep taking my glasses off? All right. All right. Uh, you should be. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. Every place I go. One of the things we talked about and we it was in our worship. Who does wind up creating McLaren's worship or my worship or Adele's or Peter's? Why are we here gathered in this room? Because God is saying, I actually create worship by my will. I cause my name to be remembered. The only reason there's a church in San Francisco is because our Father said, I want to cause my name to be remembered in San Francisco. Praise him. This is the warrant for worship. You're being invited into the plans of God. Do you, you realize this isn't about you? This isn't about you. These songs are not about you. They're not about you. They're not about me. I'm not up here. This is about me. No, I am here to deliver to you, to announce to you, to preach to you, to call you, to know God. This isn't about us. We're here to We've been called because he's caused us to remember. And this idea of memory, this is why week in and week out, I call you to worship. Why? You should be called to worship. The routining of it. Do you hear the routining and the remembering? What does Christ say at the table? Do this and what? Remember me. You know who he's quoting? His heavenly father. We've been called to remember. This is why worship is a routine of remembering. It's so essential to your life and to mine. Praise him. All right, so the possibility of worship continuing is because of his will. The possibility of worship being real is because of his blood. The possibility of worship having power. Oh, this is so beautiful, isn't it? It's the, it's the work of God in Jesus Christ. He doesn't give us idols. He gives us his son. Praise him. All right, in every place I cause my name, remember, I will, what, what does he say? I will what? Come to you. What are we even promised then in this worship? It's nothing less than the presence of God. You know, uh, you know, um, you ever heard of something called a prayer meeting? You ever heard of something called a prayer meeting? You've heard that word, right? That expression, that phrase, prayer meeting. I never understood where it came from. You know, it's not about people meeting together. That's not the meeting that's being described. Those old saints didn't really care about who was at the meeting, apart from who. God himself. Prayer meeting was not about meeting with other people. You were meeting with God. <laughs> That's so different, isn't it? You know, honestly, the picture of this as a social club is actually pleasant, but totally unnecessary and irrelevant. And yet beautifully created by him. And he is in it. But that's not why we're here. We want him to come to us. I want, to hear, I want you to hear something. You know how much this reduced my heart? I want you to hear this. Your pastor, just like you, is always tricked by idols. I'm always being tricked by an idol somehow. Oh, I want this or that. And so I think more about who might come than whether God will come. Do you ever do that? You ever catch yourself doing that? 
He worried about who might come. How's the church going to grow? Who's in attendance? You know, why are they here? Why is that one couple not here again? What are they doing? I thought they were going to like it. Who are these members? How are we going to grow? And then all of a sudden you're sitting there and you're caught up in church growth and and the need to expand worship. I want thousands. Our father, who do you want to come here? There's only one person who we really need to come here. And that's our father. Praise him. This is the work of worship. And finally, what does he say? I will come to you and I will bless you. (laughs) It it ends. I don't want to end with this. It kind of ends with this nakedness in the altar. So the idea was, you know, this is pre-underwear, guys. Pre-underwear. So you have a big altar and you go up the altar. Pre-underwear. Somebody sitting right there gets to see my junk, right? As I'm doing my worship thing. Which is weird. Why is that included in there? Because in the midst of all of our worship are temptations. You ever come to worship and been like, man, I just really wasn't there today. I just couldn't connect with anything Chris was saying, and songs were boring, and I wonder why I go, and nobody talked to me. But you still have to come back to worship, Adele. Um, but so, so... You see, you see it when he crawls in. And it's, it's amazing to me that God's already got his finger on it, doesn't he? He already has his finger on it here in Exodus 20. He just delivered the law. He's already got his finger on it. He's already identified the blood of Christ that is coming. He is purviewing and previewing and announcing the reality is by blood. He's doing all this stuff. And then what does he say? And by the way, be careful. Because you can make this all about you. Right? Look how tender he is. But finally, don't make it out of any hewn stones. Did you notice that? In the tag, a weird little, it's right there in that verse. Don't, no hammered stone. No, no stand of it. It's been chiseled or carved or broken. Act later, when uh, Solomon builds the temple in, uh, in Kings, in the book of, no, yeah, first Kings, um, he makes care that the stone for the temple had been quarried. Because the, the temple itself is much bigger. So, what they did instead, because they had to chisel the stone, it had to be chiseled so that the sound of the chisels, this is what God said, so the sound of the chisels could not be heard within earshot of the temple. They could use the chiseled stone, the hewn stone you needed, in order to build a large structure, but in order to honor this command, Solomon had them cut all the stone far away, off sight. And then bring it to honor this command. What is this command? And here's the sweet savor of the gospel for you and me. And this is why I gave my life to this message with joy. Because it is about blood and life and death. But, but in the midst of this, love of God abides eternal grace. <laughs> I mean abundant love. What I mean. There's an image here. God will not accept any worship that you, like, work for. He will reject every attempt to earn his love. And that image of grace, that image of you will not add to my temple, you will not carve my temple, you will not make my altar, because my altar is made by me, for me, and I place my son upon it. 
Like it's this God-centered, immediate, beautiful majesty. And the idea that you couldn't carve the stones was a message of grace. You see, it's not about your labor. It never has been. It has never been about you earning salvation, even by good altar building. <laughs> or even by good altar living. Even by all those animals. You never earned anything, says the Lord. I am your salvation. You're you see, you know, now, and come around from the circle to this, what, what's our warrant for worship? It began with this dark, worshiping the passionate pursuit of Christ and the darkness of an altar, Nadab and Abihu, and the life is scary. But what does it end with in Christ in the New Testament? What is it, where do we finally brought to? God has made peace with the blood of the Son forever with dead, forever with me. I can't even make the right altar, and he saved me. <laughs> Praise him. And now the possibility. Now the pregnancy, the, the, the sheer need to worship. If you grasp these things, will come to you. Oh, yes, it will come to you. You will worship. Because what else will you do? If you will grasp or see or perceive this grace, what are you going to do? You're going to go for it. You're going to, and, and this is what I hope as we explore the worship of the scriptures, explore the worship of the Old Testament, it will happen to us. I'm, I'm praying that will be released into the worship of this God. Let's pray. Father, I praise your goodness and your love. I, I sometimes when I, 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 when I speak to your people, I, I, I get done and I don't even... <sighs> Father, I, I cannot create worship for these people. I can't even create faith for them. But I know you can. I am not their mediator, Father. Only your son is. But I know I can come to you in his name. I know I can ask for you to come to us and bless us. I know I can come and ask you to be tender to us and loving. Remember us in our idolatry and how hard it is for us, how distracted we are. How we turn worship into wrong things and draw us to you. <sighs> Father, I come to your son. I come to you in your son. I come to you. I plead the blood on the altar of the cross for my poor sake and for my people, for my city and my generation. Father, move and come to us with compassion. Create new worship in San Francisco. Create new worship in me. Create your worship in us that pleases you, cause us to remember. If we pray all these things in Christ. Amen. On the night he was betrayed, why well, really made a mess of here? Yikes. Um, on the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread and broke it, saying, This is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat same way after dinner he took a cup of wine and he said this is my blood shed for forgiveness of sins take and drink he took the entire sacrificial system entire thousands of years of sacrifice and said it was all about me and this table all of you who come by faith in the son of God have forgiveness of sins praise him praise him 
Praise Him. Praise Him. Stop, stop whatever you're doing right now and praise Him. Seriously. Whatever you're, praise Him in your heart. Praise Him right now. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about when I say praise Him because you don't know this God yet. I know that. I, I, I understand. It kind of puzzles you. Like, I just don't get it. So if you're if one of those people just don't get it, just watch us. And maybe, maybe God's, maybe worship's coming for you, right? Maybe worship's coming for you. Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> but if you're a skeptic, I encourage you just to watch us and wonder if, how real this might be for you someday. But I have a final person I want to talk to, talk about. And that is, if you think that you're a good man or woman, though, I'm so sorry. Seriously, I'm sorry. Because you don't need an altar. If you're a good person, what do you need an altar for? You can go to God directly, so go. But you're not worthy of this table. Only sinners are worthy of this table. If anyone thinks they're a good person, they have disqualified themselves for this church and for this God. So I encourage you, sinners, (laughs) wars, praise him. Praise him. Look what he has done. Praise his excellent greatness. Praise him. His blood was covered. You praise him. Or you've been called to remember. Praise him. (laughs) Or he will come to you and bless you. All right. Here's the drill. This is grape juice to the left. This is wine to the right. Those who prefer it. These are gluten-free, aren't they? Yes. Jesus is gluten-free here. (laughs) Which is good for me. And, uh... I'm going to ask you come come forward while we're singing and take a little uh, take a cracker and a cup back to your seat and we'll take it all together after after we're after we're done. All right. So get this out of the way here. All right, Christian brother and sister, let's stand. Tell me, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.